24 through 29 here in Colossians chapter 1. If for some reason you don't have your Bibles with you, fear not, for as usual, the Scriptures will be also up here on the screen. Colossians chapter 1, Paul is writing this epistle to a church he has not founded and to a church that he has not visited. And he says, Now I am rejoicing in my sufferings for you. And I am filling up what is lacking of the tribulations of the Christ in my flesh for his body, which is the church, of which I became a servant according to the administration of God who has given me to you to complete the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from the generations, but now was made manifest to His saints, to whom God did indeed will to make known what is the wealth of the glory of this mystery among the nations, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we announce admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom so that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And to this end I labor, striving according to His working, which is working mightily in me. Let's pray. Almighty and Heavenly Father, To know you truly is eternal life. Please make it so that we may perfectly know your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life. Make it that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that leads to everlasting and eternal life. Through Him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever and ever, we pray. Amen. I mentioned to you just a, a second ago, or a few, few seconds ago, that Paul is writing to a church he did not found, and to a church that, to the best of our understanding of Paul and his ministry and his missionary travels and the context of why he's writing this letter in response to uh, their pastor who was so concerned for the people of the city of Colossae. To the best of our understanding, Paul never visited this church, at least prior to his writing this epistle. Paul writes to them in love. He writes to them covering a number of themes that he covers in some of his other letters, but writing to them also addressing some themes that you don't find in some of his other letters. And one of those themes that Paul works through this epistle is that of the greatness and what he calls the preeminence of Christ. That Christ is all things to the believer that Christ is all things to the church, 
that Christ is all things to the world. He says that Christ, Jesus, is the image or the icon of the invisible God. Try to put that thought together. The invisible, the God who can't be seen, isn't seen, who John said has never been seen, who the Old Testament says to see is to taste death. He is the one who has manifested that God to us. We look at Him and we see the God who can't be seen. We look at Him as an icon, an image. And we see God. Paul Throughout his theology, he equates, as I've been sharing for the last few weeks, he equates our life in Jesus to being caught up in his resurrection and death. And he uses baptism as as an image of that conformity to Christ. We have been buried with Him and we have been raised with Him. We have known, we have been connected to the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And Paul speaks about the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. He speaks of it here in, I would kind of tilt our attention also to what he says to the Corinthians in his first epistle to them in chapter 15. That the resurrection of Jesus is not just some theological truth. It's not just some truism. It's not just some image for the church to kind of pick itself up and live a better life. Paul sees the resurrection of Jesus as historical fact. It's not wishful thinking It's not a supposal of what might have been or what might could be. It's not just some something to take our attention away from the death of our Lord. He sees the resurrection and He would have us to see it as an historical fact. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. His body did not decompose in some empty tomb or in some tomb. Instead, His body was brought back into union with His soul and His body stepped forth from the tomb. It really happened. And if it really happened, Paul says, we too look forward to a day of resurrection. We too will one day be raised up and our bodies will be given new life. The hope of the gospel is not just existence beyond death. The hope of the gospel is that just as Jesus was raised, we too will be raised. That there is a new creation that God has begun and will continue on into completion. And if Christ has been raised, if that is historical fact, if it has actually happened, then Paul says there is a theological reality. We, by putting our trust in Jesus, we, by 
giving our lives to Him and making Him to be Lord of our lives, not just Lord of history, not just the Lord of Israel, not just the Lord of the world in some generic sense, but if we say He is our Lord and we will live in faithful covenant with Him as our Lord, then there is a theological reality that takes place in the life of the believer. We too are raised up to new life. Not just in a future one day beyond death sense, but even now we've been raised up to new life. And so that is, that is what underlies Paul's call to the church in all of his epistles, in really the last half of all of his epistles, to live different lives, to live new lives. And Paul always structures his letters in this way. He begins with theology. He begins with doctrine. And if you don't like theology and you think doctrine is just for the birds, then okay, skip half of your New Testament because that's what it's dealing with. But the fact is that Paul begins by saying, this is what Christ Jesus has done in our behalf. And this is what makes Him Lord. Therefore, we ought to live as though He is Lord. Which is really the activity of the church. That's why there's the body. Because God is doing something different in the world. He's doing something that the world doesn't see. He's doing something that the world doesn't know. That the world doesn't understand. He's doing something, in fact, that in the early church was considered absolute foolishness and rubbish to the world. What is wrong with these Christians? They're so weird. They're like backwoods and and odd, and they care about the weak and innocent and the, the, the riffraff of the world. They're pathetic and weak. God's doing something different in the world through His church and in His church. Paul says, we have been raised up with Jesus. We one day will be resurrected, but even now, today, God calls us to live resurrected lives, lives that have been given new life in Jesus. And Paul um, speaks to the Colossians, to his other audiences, not just of the resurrection of Jesus, but that because of the resurrection of Jesus, the presence of Jesus is something to be known and enjoyed here and now in the church and in the believer. Paul speaks of us being in Christ and Christ being in us. Jesus told His disciples on the night that He was betrayed that we must abide in Him and He in us. Just as He and the Father co-abide in one another, so also the believer is to co-abide in Jesus. He promises His presence to us. He promises that In our lives, His presence can be seen and felt and tasted and smelled. That His presence wants to permeate our lives. In fact, that's the message of Pentecost, which we'll celebrate in just a few weeks. Pentecost is not just some old Jewish holiday, though it was. It was a feast. But Pentecost is about God, through His Holy Spirit, coming to take up residence in the heart of man. That God is not satisfied with standing off to the distance and saying, 
It's okay. You're forgiven. God wants to take up resonance in our lives. He wants to come through His Spirit and bring the very presence of His Son Jesus into the heart of the believer so that He can come into the life of the church and bring the presence of Jesus into the life of the church. Paul speaks of Christ being in us. In fact, he says it's a mystery. He says... This is the mystery that that the world has waited for. This is that secret, so to speak, that the world has been wondering, what's going on? And that mystery has been revealed in the church. He calls the church His saints, His holy ones, His people who are being made like their Lord. Paul says that mystery has been revealed. It's before now been hidden from the ages and hidden from all the generations. But it has been made known now, even to the Gentiles, even to those who are outside the household of Israel, even to all the world. The mystery has been revealed. It has been made known. It has become manifest in Jesus. And Paul defines that mystery for us. He says it is very simply Christ in you. Jesus in you. The interesting thing about mysteries, and I was talking with the, um, with the preteens prior to the service about this. A mystery, we normally associate it with a secret. You know, it's something that's going to be revealed. It's something we want to find out about. It's something that we want to know. But the, the kind of the other side of the coin of a mystery is that a mystery cannot be fully understood. The greatest of all mysteries, husbands, is your wives. You could be married for 50 years and thank Jesus that some people still in our world celebrate 50-year anniversaries. You could be married for 50 years and you could know that other person the greatest of anybody else in your life. You can know them better than their own mommy and daddy knew them. Because it's in a completely different way. And still, you will never fully comprehend and understand them. I will never, ever, ever, not even in eternity, will I understand why Lindsay does what she does sometimes. That's the nature of a mystery. A mystery is something that can be known but it can't be exhaustively understood. That's why we speak of uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper as sacraments, which is Latin for mystery. Ultimately, we don't know why Jesus said to baptize. We don't know why He said, do this in remembrance of me. But He did. And we know some things about it. We understand some of the images. We understand some of what's going on. But we can't fully understand the working of God. The passage ends with Paul saying that God, he's doing this through the working of God, which God is working in him mightily. And he's speaking of this working that is working. And and he talks also about being called as an apostle and called as a servant to the church, even to suffer 
in behalf of the church. And he says this is done according to the administration of God or according to God's purposes. And those are things that we can't fully comprehend. We can't fully comprehend why God is doing what He's doing. We can't fully comprehend what it is that we're headed toward. But we can know that it has something to do with this idea of taking up resonance in Jesus so that Jesus might also take up resonance in us. It has something to do with our lives being fit into His life. That's why we can speak of having eternal life even now. Eternal life is not something to be enjoyed after we die. Eternal life is something that is promised to us now. Jesus told His disciples on the night that He was betrayed, and then during His high priestly prayer, He explained a little bit of that. He said, to know you, the one true God, and me, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent, that is eternal life, O Father. And we are called to know Jesus today. We're called to bring ourselves to Him, to find our lives in Him, to conform our lives to His, and to therein know Him, and to love Him, which even still is a mystery. The fact that the mystery has been revealed doesn't take away the fact that it is a mystery. You explain to me how Jesus lives in your heart. How that makes sense on a scientific level. How that makes sense really even on a theological level. Because we, we, we have some patterns, but we don't know how it all fits. It's still a mystery. In fact, talking with the kids, we were talking about the heart. and I think it was Layla brought up the, the, the interesting nature of the heart and how it beats and that sort of stuff. We then got off into a scientific uh, discussion. But in the end, we were able to say we can say a lot of things about how the heart works, but none of us can explain why it works in that way. It's a mystery. Paul says, the mystery of all the ages, the mystery of all generations has been revealed to us, to the church, and that is Christ in us, which is a glorious hope. He wants to take up residence in our lives. He wants to take up residence in our lives as believers, and He wants to take up residence in the life of of the church. When Paul is writing his epistle to the Corinthians, that first epistle, before he gets to the resurrection of Jesus in chapter 15, he gives us some very interesting um, discussions in chapters 11 through 14. We remember that 13 is the chapter on love, the greatest of all gifts. And we remember that it's in response to all the distinctiveness that's found in the unity of the body in chapter 12 with all the gifts and everything. And he teases out that idea of plurality of gifts in chapter 14. But in chapter 11, he's talking 
he's, he's talking about some weird stuff. He talks about ladies having head coverings and that sort of stuff. But he makes this weird statement. He says that uh, ladies should cover their heads because of the angels. And then he just moves on. And if you stop and think, wait a minute, what is he talking about? What angels? What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that in the life of the church, especially in the worshiping life of the church, that there's heavenly activity going on around us and among us. Heaven is not something that's so far removed. Paul said, even God the Father is not so far away from us. He's so close to us that He's longing for us to just reach out. God wants to do something in the life of the church that brings His very presence into the life of the church. So that in our worship, He's there. So that in our actions and interactions, in our reactions, He's there. So that in how we behave to the world and how we treat His world, He's there. In light of this presence of Jesus Paul makes some very interesting observations and connections to what I'm just going to call the inness of Jesus. I'm not talking here about Jesus being like in the in crowd. I'm talking about this idea of Jesus being in us and us being in Him. It's interesting that Paul makes a big to-do about the body of Christ. He talks about the church, the called out ones, those who have been called together as an assembly And he says, this is the body of Christ. And Paul talks about the work that he is doing and how God has called him as a servant to the body of Christ, to the church. And it seems very clear, at least in the life of Paul and in the writings of Paul, that those who have Christ in them place a pretty significant importance upon others in whom Christ lives. Namely, the church. If Christ is in us, if we have been conformed to His image and to the image of His resurrection, if that is a theological reality for our lives, then it is incumbent upon us to care about His body, the church. We have a vested interest in the church. It is Jesus' body. And in it, in its fellowship, in its establishment and carrying on of God's kingdom, it is what God is doing in the world and for the world's behalf. So Paul cares for the church. And you and I too are called to care For the church. For in it, as we interact with one another, as we worship with one another, as we serve the community with one another, we are interacting with the body of our Lord. With others who declare His Lordship. With others who are striving to live as though He is Lord. And so there's this 
sharedness of life to which we're called. This sense in which we live the Christian life together, not on islands, not separate, not segmented, not segregated off, but together. The book of Acts calls it koinonia, a fellowship or a communion of living. And then regretfully so, at least in a natural sense, to be in Jesus and for Jesus to be in us, there's not just this interest that we have in the body of Christ, but there's also a fellowship that Paul speaks of that we have in the sufferings of Christ. I don't suppose I will ever get my head around what Paul says when he says that in his very flesh, the flesh of his physical body, he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions or sufferings. We remember the suffering of our Lord during Passion Week. We remember His scourgings. We remember the thorn or the crown of thorns. We remember the lashes. We remember the mocking. We remember the spitting. We remember the rejection. We remember the betrayal. We remember the denial. We remember the abandonment. We remember the mock trial. We remember his silence before his accusers. We remember that his Hands were nailed to a cross after he had to carry it up Golgotha's hill. We remember all of those sufferings, and then Paul says he's filling up what's lacking in those sufferings as though, as though those sufferings aren't enough. Paul says, I rejoice. I delight not in that I suffer, but that I am through God's will enabled to suffer with Jesus for the sake of the church, His body. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, John chapter 15 captures those moments that Jesus spent with His disciples. And one of the things that He promised them was rejection. Rejection and suffering. Not just rejection from the world, but removal even from the synagogues. They will hate you, they will curse you, they will kick you out. They will remove you. You read Peter's epistles and you find that, yep, that promise of rejection and that promise of suffering didn't go away with time. 
you read the book of Acts and you find a church that is suffering, that is being rejected, that is being ridiculed, and yet it grows. It was Tertullian, one of the fathers, perhaps the father of Latin theology, who hundreds and hundreds of years ago, just a short while after Jesus and the disciples said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When Jesus living in us and when us living in Him means that not because of wrong we've done, but for the sake of being faithful to the body of Christ and for the sake of being faithful to our Lord, we suffer. The question that is then impressed into us and that we should keep before us, is does the world see Jesus? Does the world see Jesus in my life and in yours? And does the world see Jesus in our life together? Because we can talk all day long about Jesus living in our hearts, but if He's not seen there, all sorts of questions are then begged to be answered. And we can talk an awful lot about being a Christian church. But if our neighbors and if our community doesn't see Him in us, then what difference has been made? It is not enough for us to talk about just some doctrinal or theological truth about Jesus indwelling us and about us indwelling Him. what must be settled and what must be evident and what must be seen is that He's actually seen in us. Is He seen in our tempers? Is He seen in our interactions? Is He seen in our behaviors? Is He seen in our families? Is He seen? Let's pray.